morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is John Hart, who will be in virtual conversation with Patricia Cornwell at Bookmarks on February 2nd, and whose new novel, The Unwilling, will be published that same day. John, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you, Charlie. Couldn't be happier. Now, John, you and I are fellow graduates of Davidson College. Uh, we just missed being there together because you're young and I'm old. I think that's the difference <laughs> that, that four years makes. <laughs> but um, I know a lot of us Davidsonians are getting together next week to to talk about and remember a great professor and writer, Tony Abbott. Um, I'm curious to know what you learned and experienced during your years at Davidson um, that's had an influence on your career as a novelist. Well, first of all, um, I was unaware that Tony had passed. Is that is that what you're telling me? Yeah, um, two or three months ago, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't yeah. know that. It, it's yeah. funny. You know, I was not an English major at Davidson. I was a French major. And uh, I got to know Tony a little bit after uh, my first novel came out. I'd see him mm-hmm. at different writer events. And yeah. Yeah. he told a funny story once. Um, you know, of course, he taught Patricia Cornwell, who, who yeah. did so well. And um after the King of Lies came out and hit the list and everything, uh, people were coming up to Tony on campus, patting him on the back and saying, hey, congratulations, Tony. You know, you got another one. And Tony's <laughs> like, I don't know this kid. I've never seen him. I've never met him. I have no idea who he is. Um, but I did get to know Tony a little bit over the uh, years. And he yeah. was a really sweet, gentle, talented guy. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about this. He was. He was. Uh, I think I took... I took a class with him at Davidson where we had the option of either writing a term paper or uh, writing a play because it was a modern drama class. And that to me was one of um, the ways that Davidson encouraged me as a creative writer at a day when there weren't a lot of creative writing classes. But um, but and so so you you come out of Davidson as a French major. That doesn't immediately suggest novelist to me, but um, were, were there things that happened in your undergraduate career that you that you draw on today? Well, I, I can tell you that um, I first came up with the idea of trying to do this for a living when I was 20. I think it was the mm-hmm. summer after my sophomore year at Davidson. I was living at Riceville Beach and spending my days restoring sailboats, which oh, is well, yeah. sexy speak for sanding wood <laughs> for minimum wage. You know? <laughs> but I figured, hey, man, it's beer money and I'm getting a tan. It's fine. Uh, so I'd, I'd finish my day uh, at the marinas and then I'd go out to the local watering holes and I'd have a few beers and I'd outline my great American novel on literally on cocktail napkins. I still have that stack of napkins. Oh, that, wow. The whole conceit of the novel was absurd looking back. But <laughs> at the time, I thought it was high cotton, high genius. Um, but no, it, it, nothing particular at Davidson that I can point to. Honestly, I was a little bit adrift at that stage in my life. I didn't yeah. know who I was, what I wanted to be. Uh, I was a passionate reader um, always. And so the idea of doing this for a living was always attractive. Um, I was actually pre-med for my first two years at Davidson, Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. because I'm from a medical family and that seemed like the right path. 
you know, they, they say that Davidson organic chemistry makes more religion. Maybe <laughs> yeah. than, than anything else. I didn't even have to get that far before I realized it was not my, my calling. Um, so I bailed for uh, two trimesters. We were on trimesters at the time and um, went to France just to figure out what I wanted to do. And when I came back, I, I still didn't know, but I spoke French really well. So I transferred uh, to the French program just to try yeah. to graduate on time. Uh, it's, it's not a particularly inspiring story, but, but there it is. So the, the blurb for your new novel, The Unwilling, says that it is written in John Hart's singular style. I, I find that uh, an interesting claim. And so I have to ask you, how do, would you describe your singular style? Uh, you know, I don't know. Was it the publishers that said that? Yeah, I think it's the publishers that said it. No author yeah, would ever you know, say that about themselves. There, there are these, <laughs> well, there are all these moving parts to trying to, to sell books and build readerships. And, and there's obviously the words on the page, what you and I both do, that um, you know, that we can control. And then there are the things that the publishers like to do. And part of that is about branding and it's about, um, you know, convincing the reading public that this author who is in the commercial thriller space is still somehow different than all the other authors in that space. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. early on, I got tagged um, as a writer of literary thrillers. Yeah. And that was not, I didn't seek that out. That wasn't my choice. Um, but the publishers started um, sort of, I don't want to say pigeonholing me like that, because I've never really heard people call that very often, but they really liked the fact that I could write propulsive thrillers that were still heavy on character and with a lot of attention to language, um, yeah, yeah. which are things that I enjoy a lot. I mean, I love finding interesting people, telling their stories, breaking them down uh, to their component parts, usually under duress. Um, and, I, and I really enjoy working with the language. And I, I know that you're the same way. I mean, we get wrapped up around a sentence or a paragraph and spend yeah. way more time than we should. But <laughs> there it is. That's that's the, the fun of it. So and I don't know the specific answer to this question of singular style, but I suspect that that's the, you know, the publishers that are still trying to differentiate what I do than, than what a lot of commercial sure. thriller writers do. Um, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's very flattering. Um, I, I don't know how I would describe what my singular style is other than to say that I try to write books that um, I would enjoy reading and that yeah. my wife would respect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's, it's easy to laugh at that, but it's kind of true. Um, oh, I think that's a great litmus test for, for those of us who are lucky enough to have wives who read our books, you know? Yeah. Especially when they're smart and uh, yeah. part of the, part of the program. And um, my wife really does. She, she likes more literary things. And I, I actually had two failed novels before my first was published. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever walked that path. It's a dark oh, yeah. one, um, I, I, but rejections are tough, especially serial rejections over to your first two books. <laughs> We get so much of our blood and sweat and soul into these things. It's hard not to take it personally when that happens. But um, after those first two rejections, I, I really took a hard look at what I was doing. And I realized that I was trying to you know, mimic some of the authors that had achieved success. And that's not the way to do. You have to yeah. do your own yeah. thing and find your own yeah. voice. And so I literally made a decision that uh, you know, I'm going to find a way to write books that would keep me up until two in the morning, but that my wife can give to her friends with some pride and dignity. <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah. important. I think that's great. So this new novel, the story is set um, in and around Charlotte, North Carolina, towards the end of the Vietnam War. And the war obviously has a huge effect on, on the characters in this novel, as we learned in the opening chapters. Why particularly this period in history? What, what was it about that, that that drew you to want to write a novel in this time? Okay, that's, that's a really great question. Um, it's weird. You probably get this, these questions too. You know, where did you get your ideas? Where do your stories come from? We hear those things a lot. 
Um, and it's a hard, nigh impossible question to answer because it comes from a thousand different places. Um, you know, I grew up in Salisbury. We have this much in common. I mean, we're, we grew up, f- what, 40 miles apart, 30 miles apart. You grew yeah. up in Winston. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to Davidson. So Charlotte was always a big part of my life. And yeah. I like the idea of trying to set a novel entirely in the past. I've never done that. So it's always try to set a, a kind of a uniquely personal challenge with every book that I write. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I do a female protagonist that um, women readers will accept? And how do I build an adult themed thriller around a 13 year old boy? And, you know, can I write a book set entirely in the past? Because there's so many things that we as novelists um, use to make plotting a book so easy. And the number one thing is the cell phone. Yeah. You have your character moving in one direction, you need him somewhere else, boom, the phone rings, there's a new piece of information yeah. and it's, it's, yeah. it's genius, it's so easy. So I wanted to try to, to do um, a little bit of a more difficult write, but I picked that era for really two reasons. One, uh, I was born in 65, so I was seven years old in 1972, mm-hmm. far too young uh, to go to Vietnam or really even worry about it too much. But I remember the older kids uh, that were afraid of the draft or that were drafted or that yeah. were enlisting. And it was a big topic of conversation when you got in around those kids that age, you know, are you going to fight? Are you going to, are you going to run? What are you going to do? Um, and it kind of infused the air, um, in a lot of the ways, I'd say that whole era, the early 70s, the air was infused with a lot of the same sense and um, emotions and vibrations that we have today, meaning mm-hmm. the country was divided. Um, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of distrust. Um, it, it was just a really difficult time. You know, there were riots and, um, you know, Kent State shootings weren't that long ago and people were protesting the war and I like the idea of writing a book set in that time with the simple idea that it could in part be a reminder to people in this country that when we act um, in good faith and as decent human beings, uh, we can get through just about anything and we come together. And I'm sure it's the same. You ask anybody, and I don't care what side of the political spectrum they're on. Nobody likes what's going on in our country uh, right now. And uh, I don't know, I just, it felt very similar to me. Now, granted, when I started writing this book, you know, we weren't to the place we are now with contested elections and all these other things. But, um, you know, we certainly didn't have 26,000 troops in Washington, D.C. But if you look back at the 70s, I mean, we had plenty of stuff like that going on. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe history does rhyme. I, d- I just thought it'd be a fun time to write about. Um, and I'll say one last thing, and I, I tend to go long on answers, and I apologize, so feel free to That's cut all right. I don't want to usurp your, your agenda, but um, one of my sort of core tenets of faith as a fiction writer is that the things that happened to us in childhood are the things that shape us most firmly, and they inform the things we do right up until the day we die. I mean, we're, we're so crafted in that those early years, and if you look at my books, you'll see, and I think I could probably say truthfully that it's in every book that the main character or characters are shaped fundamentally by things that happen in their past, usually mm-hmm. traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fun to sort of explore why they turned into the adults that they did based on the things that happened uh, in their past. Um, one time on my third novel, The Last Child, uh, I wrote a novel about a 13 year old boy, not who he was after his childhood, but what what was the traumatic event in his childhood that shaped him. And I had a lot of fun doing that. It kind of put me in touch with some of the memories I have of my own childhood. 
Um, and so I wanted to do something similar to that as well. And the, the main character in this book is an 18 year old boy uh, about to graduate from high school. He's weeks out. He had two brothers fight in Vietnam. One died. Uh, one was decorated and then discharged dishonorably and in, uh, in prison for heroin. And this kid's about to graduate and decide who he's going to be. Uh, and I just thought that would be a really interesting exploration um, of a coming of age story of, of a young man in that time in this particular circumstances. And of course, because it's a crime fiction, you know, suspense driven thriller, um, all the other good bits have to come into it as well. You know, yeah. the, the dark, the dark and dastardly things. Right. Right. So you mentioned, um, you know, we have, you have a, a family that's kind of at the center of this story, the French family, uh, dad's a cop, um, twin brothers who were born on either side of midnight. So one of them, you know, ended up being killed in, in Vietnam. Uh, and then this, this younger brother uh, who, when we get to his part of the story, um, we switch into the first person. And to me as a reader, that was kind of a clue that's like, okay, this guy, you know, there's a lot of characters in these early novels in these early chapters. Maybe this is the main guy because I'm, because mm -hmm. I'm in the first person. Why, why, why did you want to um, give that change of viewpoint uh, when you got to, to Gibby's story? No, that's a great question. You know, uh, point of view is always such a, a fundamental decision when one starts a book. And um, the first two I wrote were first person, you know, and so he, quick, explanation of the strengths and weaknesses first person you can really bring your reader into the thoughts and feelings of your yeah. character but you're limited to how you structure the plot of the novel because that character has to be in every scene which makes right. it challenging third person um you can bounce around different characters show a lot of activity um but you're not wed to that one point of view i, I think what i did is called cheating third person or cheating first i can't remember <laughs> uh but the idea is yeah i knew that this 18 year old boy's name's gibson he goes by gibby I knew it was his story that, you know, it was, it was his journey to make, you know, what does he do when um, he's about to graduate from high school, this, this one brother that survived the war, who's a very hard, difficult to understand young man uh, is released from prison after two and a half years on a heroin conviction. And he comes home and our, our hero Gibby has been overly sheltered by his parents. They don't want him around this dangerous uh, felon of a brother you know, who was reported, reputed to have done really in incredible things in the war. I mean, like high level warfare. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew it was going to be this kid's story. And so I wanted to really get into his thoughts and feelings as he sort of grew into this decision process. What kind of man am I going to be? Uh, but it's interesting. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes the characters that you begin a novel expecting to be a little more secondary tend to become as primary as anyone you write. Sure. And so uh, the older brother, Jason, who's the one that did three tours in Vietnam and came back under this cloud and has done all these horrible, dangerous, inexplicable things. He ended up just as much a beating heart uh, of the novel as yeah. his younger brother. And so uh, it, it's funny how it worked out. It was supposed to be most of the focus on the younger brother. I think it's really both their stories. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I think the, I think having the first and third, it kind of, it, it, to me, it feels like, you know, Gibby is at a place in his life where he's maybe a little more confessional, a little more, you know, the, the kind of head that you can, you can be in as a reader, whereas Jason, you almost have to stand back from him a little bit because um, he is so uh, uh, troubled, I guess would maybe would be the best word for it. I, I feel well, like. Let me just say one thing before we move on. I, yeah, I, sure. I love, I love the, the, the point that you just kind of uh, dove into. Um, 
one of the things that's fun to do in, in creating these characters is really getting this examination of what made them and um, what choices did they make for themselves and what, what choices are they allowed to make, what, what is baked into the cake. And so the way I crafted this, you had these two brothers, they were five years older than uh, Gibby. Robert, who's the one that was drafted and died early in Vietnam, was really the good brother. You know, he, he was warm and sensitive and, and maybe a little too soft for war. And Jason, the other twin, was the one that was sardonic and cruel and, um, you know, cutting in his wit and all of these things. And, and yet he's the one that uh, comes back. So it, it was just so fun to put this young man between these two brothers. And the parents are there. Right. They're, they're a little incidental because it's really these two brothers that are their father figures. And yeah. which one will win the heart and soul of the youngest brother? Is mm -hmm. it the, the good brother who died uh, soft and tragically or the, the hard brother who survived but carries all these scars? Um, and again, this this really is a novel about what choices this kid going to make. He's got a college deferment. He does not have to go to Vietnam. Yeah. But his, his father was a Marine in Korea. His brothers both fought in Vietnam and the Marines. And and he really feels um torn, you know, between which path to, to pursue. So anyway, it's, it's, it's all about is the writer, what buttons get me excited about these characters and what makes me want to sit down every day and, and write more? Because as you know, it's a hard, lonesome business writing books. And so yeah. if you're not enjoying it, if you're not getting something out of it, it makes it a little tough. I do like this idea of Gibby, you know, trying to, trying to decide who he is. There's a great moment. I, we, we experienced this moment a couple times, I don't remember exactly how many times, but where he is uh, at the top of a cliff at a, at a quarry trying to decide whether he's going to dive off this this fairly dangerous cliff dive. Um, and to me, those moments are, you know, it's really emblematic of him trying to figure out what what path he's going to take. Uh, yeah. I, I really yeah. like the way you use those scenes. Well, let me, let me just break that down real fast because I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, again, it, part of what I'm trying to do is to take the reader back, certainly those of us who remember the 70s, take them back to the things that might resonate. And, you know, high diving was a big deal in the early 70s, you know, wild world of sports. They'd have these high oh, dive yeah, competitions. Yeah. And, and so I, I had this cliff at a quarry that was exactly 15 feet less than the world record high dive, which was a guy down in, I think, in Venezuela in 1972. Yeah. And but it was a big international thing, you know, he's, he's got the best high diver. Um, and so, again, we're talking about what makes these characters. And so Robert, the soft older brother who finds out he's, been drafted and has to go to Vietnam, you know, why does he decide to make this dive that no one has ever done and survived in the history of, of this small Southern city? Um, he wanted to know that he couldn't die. He thought if he could survive this dive, he could survive Vietnam. And so that's why he did it, right? Um, the brother that suffers in prison and comes back with all of these um, shadows riding on his shoulders, you know, he makes the dive once, but, you know, we'd learn by the end that he needed to prove to himself that he was still alive. And that's the yeah. reason, you know, he made the dive. Why, why would you risk your life? You can't do it because it's the cool thing to do or because the girls were watching from the inner tubes down in the quarry. So is Gibby going to dive or not? Um, and if so, why? And um, I, I, I won't really get too deep in the weeds on this, but I really love the way I resolve that uh, yeah. at the end um, and what happens in that final cliff top scene. Um, yeah. That was yeah. a lot of fun to write. Yeah. I, I feel like there, a lot of the opening scenes in this novel, especially within the family, uh, remind me of being an acting class, uh, some at Davidson and some other places where they where they would say to you, OK, you always want to get something from the other person in it when you're in an acting scene. And they always seem there's a lot of these scenes that seem to be real struggles for power 
in a relationship, whether it's between mother and son or husband and wife or, or between brothers. Um, what, what can you tell us about the role of, of power dynamics in, in the novel and, and in particular within that family unit? And I love I love that question. Um, so it's funny when people try to pigeonhole books, and, and maybe this goes back to that question about the publishers calling it a singular style, um, because I've heard my books described as um, you know, thrillers, mysteries, uh, suspense novels, Southern Gothic, uh, family dramas. You know, a lot of different labels go on these books. And the one thing that I would agree with that is at least a major element of each of them is this family drama question. I mean, I don't write family dramas is the principal point of the books. But I believe that there is, um, I don't want to call it a science because there's no science to writing, not really. But the more we can do to bring our readers into the characters' lives and hearts and souls, the more invested they are in the books. We all have families. We all came from somewhere, whether those families are good, bad, indifferent, dead, left, um, whatever. But so if I write a dysfunctional family, people who come from dysfunctional families can say, oh my God, I'm so sympathetic. And people who come from really wholesome, uh, hearty, healthy families or have this morbid fascination. The point is, is that wherever one falls on that spectrum, uh, using these family dynamics as a backdrop, I think it enriches the story because, you know, hurts hurt more, cuts cut more deeply, memories last longer, um, you know, family is tough. That being said, um, you know, your point about acting school and getting something from the other character, you know, that, that's very similar to writing the kind of things that create tension. I mean, one of the best ways to create tension in a novel is to make your character's desires known to the reader and then put impediments in the way of that character achieving uh, those goals or those desires because, uh, you know, they want it and your readers ideally want to root for the character to get it. The more uh, of these impediments and you can put in their way, the better, generally speaking, if you don't get uh, over the top. But um, putting these power struggles in place over families, and, and I'll give you, for instance, the dad in this book, who's a police detective and a good man who you know fought wars in his youth and has tried to live right, he absolutely believes that his middle child, Jason, is the killer in this book, that, that he abducted, tortured, and killed this poor woman. And Gibby, the younger brother, believes the exact opposite. And of course the mother is lost in her own wilderness of um, you know, despair, I suppose. She doesn't know what to do. She's a bit paralyzed. Um, so everybody sees these things very differently. And, and how does that circle back to this character, Gibby, this kid? I just think it's really important that the readers feel your characters, um, their wants, fears, needs, and that they understand the things that are standing in their way so that they can either root for them or urge them to take a different path, whatever uh, the reader kind of feels as they read those scenes. And power dynamics and family is powerful magic. It just is. I mean, we, we've all been there. We've either had the uh, domineering sibling or the overprotective parent. We all, we all, we've all seen it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I... Um wrote about, explored about in, in my most recent novel was the different ways in which people deal with tragedy and loss and the scars that it leaves on them and, and the way those scars affect their lives. And you have two parents who have lost a child in war uh, and have, in a way, almost lost the, the second child, especially once they begin to suspect that he's guilty of murder. 
Um, and yeah, I think they deal with that, especially that first loss, but really both of those in, in very different ways. Can you talk about the, the different ways in which the father and the mother sort of deal or fail to deal with, with the loss of their sons? Absolutely. So the key to doing character-driven fiction is that the choices, movements, reactions of these characters have to feel very real to the reader. Um, it's, it's a it's a careful covenant between those of us who write and those who read. And the covenant is basically this. If you trust me to bring you into this world, I will not abuse that trust. I, I will carry you along in the grip of this story and I will do nothing to pull you from it, right? Because once we get deep in the story, the last thing we want is a false note that's just going to jar us free and, and bring us back into the real world. Most of us read fiction um, to escape into the story. So um, I guess that when it comes to parents who have lost, um, and this is really, I mean, this is just the heart and soul of creative writing. I've never lost a child. I hope I never do. But it's very important to have the empathetic ability to get into the heads of these people who have and try to convey them in such a compelling, realistic way that the readers don't stop and say, oh, my God, that, that wouldn't happen. Uh, I can't buy this anymore. I'm putting down the book. I mean, it's important to, to maintain the spell. So empathy, getting into the heads of people who have suffered this great loss. You know, the, the kid who died in Vietnam, Robert, um, we find out was the mother's absolute favorite. You know, she hates that she had a favorite, but she did have yeah, a favorite. Yeah. And when word comes out that he was killed overseas, she breaks down and says it should have been Jason. And Jason overhears this. And if you're an 18, 19 year old kid and you ever hear this, you know, what do you do? So, you know, he ended up enlisting because he felt that he had no home left and he wanted to avenge his brother. So the, the mom, um, Gabrielle, uh, you know, she's I'm always ter terrified to write. Um, wounded women characters because it's so important to get it right. And I, I was really afraid to do this character, but I, I think she worked out. Um, I didn't go too deep with her, but I think that her reaction is very reasonable. Um, I think that a lot of mothers could understand how she responds um, to the death of one son, the loss of another, uh, to drugs in prison, and the fact that she has this one precious child left that she will protect at all costs. Right, right. The father, of course, is a police detective, and he's, he's all about the hard, cold realities. And so, you know, he has to walk this line between honoring the mother's wishes to keep this child safe and realizing that 18-year-old young men, they need, they need to live and they need to, to find their own path. And so novels are, I swear to God, novels are a million, million choices that you make on almost every page, you know, yeah. not just the words, not just the story, but what do you focus on and how are your characters? And it's, um, it's a consistent risk and uh, I never sleep well until the book is finished. <laughs> and someone, someone at the publishing house who knows these things says this works and you did yeah. well. And that's always a great day. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, you know, Gibby, Gibby really seems to want to have a relationship with his surviving brother, Jason, even though Jason is involved in, you know, sort of the criminal underworld and is living in this very seedy area and doing some things we're not even quite sure what at first. Um, but he seems not only fascinated with that world, but with some of the sort of rawness that he witnesses. And I'm thinking in particular, there's a moment when he sees Tyra, this woman that, um, that his brother has been sort of seeing uh, just in this absolute fit of rage and fury. Um, and, and 
Gippy says he can't imagine himself having such desire and rage. And I immediately, the, the title of a Richard Eberhardt poem popped into my head. If I could only live at that pitch that is near madness, you know, <laughs> it feels, it feels like that's what Gibby is wanting. What is it? What do you think is it about those, him witnessing those moments of raw emotion that, that so intrigues him? Well, I think, I think his reaction is he can't imagine ever feeling that, nor can he imagine inspiring such passion in another human being because mm-hmm. You know, keep in mind that he's lived this sheltered life. I mean, he was a he was a tough as a nut kid at 13 who would go out with his 18 year old brothers, you know, and they'd hunt and fish and dirt bike and fight and do all these things. And and in many ways, he was the toughest of the three. We, we learn about that later. And then his favorite brother dies and, and Gibby is pushed into this world of being incredibly over sheltered by his mother. So I don't think he's written since since the older brother, Robert, died. I don't think Gibby has really felt much of anything he, he except for this soft cotton bubble in which he's been forced to live and so he does have this dread fascination um with what it means to become a man and, and yeah. i think this could yeah. be said becoming a woman too i mean what what is the difference between childhood and adulthood where is the line and there's one point where he considers himself as the only one of three who's not been tested by you know war sex or a long fall from a high cliff or something to that effect yeah. i mean all these yeah. markers of manhood that his brothers have endured and survived and, um, you know, moved on or things that he is on the one hand terrified by and at the same time uh, fascinated by. Mm-hmm. And he's just trying to figure out, you know, what, what is the right thing to do? Do I continue to coddle uh, my emotionally wounded mother and allow my own life to be stunted? Um, or do I seek out these markers of adulthood, which in his mind really comes down to not just independence and um, girlfriends and things like that, but but danger and risk and perhaps even violence. And he sees so much of that in Jason. Um, And yet Jason is the most misunderstood character of the novel. And we don't really truly understand what a magnificent human being he is until the end of the book, at least in my, in my opinion, he's a magnificent damage wounded, but absolutely magnificent uh, human being. Um, And God, I had so much fun writing him. I I really did. That was, he was a real surprise to me. Uh, so one of the one of the vagaries I've discovered of being condemned to read digital galleys instead of nice hardcover books um, is that I it does make me kind of aware a little bit of structure in a way that I don't always do in a hardcover book. So for instance, with this book, I got to the big crime, and I glanced at the bottom of the screen and I saw that I was twenty percent of the way into the book. I thought, okay, interesting. <laughs> the crime is twenty percent of the way of the book. Um, so let's let's talk about process a little bit. I've heard you describe your process as not an outlining process, but what you call grope and hope, which I have used that quote many times since I heard you say that. Um, what what do you know before you start? Do you do you head blindly down a highway or do you have some way stations in mind? How, how does it begin? It's, uh, it, it's amazing how different authors are. I mean, I, I have some that swear if you don't outline, you, you know, you, you should be chased from the kingdom. Yeah, John, John Grisham has said to me, got to outline, Charlie, got to outline. Oh, yeah. No, he, he and I beat each other up about it all the time. Um, and, and yet, I still think that my process is better, at least for me. Now, yeah. I don't write, you know, two books a year or whatever John does. So right. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to badmouth the guy. He clearly has a system that works for him. What I like to have, because I, I do feel my way through this. I mean, I, I, I make up the story as I go, but I do have to have certain things in mind. Um, and, and the most important is this, who is the main character in their heart and soul? Meaning what do they desire? What do they fear? Um, you know, what are they willing to do? 
I don't have necessarily have to know all the things that made them that way, but I have to know what their emotional drivers are. Because for me, and this is about character-driven uh, suspense writing, what you, want to, what you want to give the reader are two absolutely certain things. Now, there are dozens of other things, but two absolutely certain things you have to give them. The first is a compelling story arc, right? And we all know that. That's the plot that just drags you through the pages at two in the morning. But we also have to see some meaningful growth in at least the main character and ideally one or two others, meaning that the characters one meets early in the book they cannot be unchanged by the end of the book. They have to be dramatically impacted by what's going on. They have to fight through uh, all of the things that come from whatever that bad circumstance is. And they have to grow meaningfully along the way and whether that it breaks them and then they find the strength to heal or whether they overcome this right out of the gate. I mean, it's different for, for different characters, but the, the reader needs to feel that um, transformation and travel that road with the main character in order to close the book and say, yes, that was worth my time. I mean, otherwise it's just a story. And uh, not that I have problems with just stories, but I think that it can be much deeper and richer. Um, so uh, I have started books in the past where I did not have that clear idea. I just thought I'd start writing and the character yeah. would come to me and, and I've hurt myself. I mean, I've lost, you know, months and, and even uh, once a whole year of writing by making that mistake and not, not having my character firmly in mind. But it's my process. Everybody's different. Um, I, I do like the um, the description, and I can never remember who gave it. You might be able to tell me. Some famous writer once said, you know, he does an outline, but it's like driving on a dark road in the fog. Yeah, at yeah. Night. I, you, know, you can see as far as the headlights. Right. But you may, you know, you're heading west, but you don't really know what the road's going to look like getting there. And for me, you know, those headlights are the next maybe two chapters yeah, forward. Yeah. I can see 30 pages ahead, but I can't see 50 pages ahead. And of course, what that does for those of us who grow up in hope is create sleepless nights and <laughs> angst. You know, wake up at two in the morning, like, you know, crap, I'm hundred pages into this book and I have no idea how I'm going to finish it. Well, I mean, but to I me, I, it, it creates sleepless nights, but on the other hand, it creates, you know, it makes me want to come back to my desk to find out what's going to happen. You know, it, yeah. it, it, it uh, it's a motivator instead of just like, I have to write down something that I already know, you know? Well, and it's so funny because I think that non-writers have a hard time getting their head around this idea of sitting down as the writer, because you can't wait to see what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that seems counterintuitive, but, but I, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. You, to write a book like this and, and some of your other books as well, you have to, you almost have to put yourself in two different but very closely related worlds. And that is the world of law enforcement and the world of crime and, and punishment. Uh, we, have, we have scenes in prisons, we have scenes of crimes being committed, and we have scenes of law enforcement trying to you know, tie all those things together. How do, you, how do you put yourself in these two different and yet intimately connected worlds? And, and which one do you have more fun writing in? Well, I'm not sure I can answer the first part because that's kind of like trying to answer the question, where do your ideas come from? Well, yeah, just, um, you know, I said earlier that writing is not science. I think that's true, but it is equal parts craft and art. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is an art question. You know, how do you how do you find your way into the minds of such completely different people? That's that's really part of the art of it. Um, and it's a, it's just a it's a gift. I think you either have it or you don't. Um, it's nothing that I've done to earn. Um 
in terms of what's the most fun to write, it's always more fun to write the, the criminals. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't have rules. I mean, you know, they, and they can be good people deep down doing things for misunderstood reasons. And man, that's compelling stuff. I mean, cops are pretty straightforward. They can be complex characters, but at the end of the day, their goal is to solve the crime. And you know that. Yeah. So um, you get a really fascinating bad guy and you leave his motivations unclear. Man, that's really fun. You get to the end of the book and now you understand why he's been doing these things. Uh, and maybe it's for a, a really simple, decent reason yeah. and not all the horrible things that people have believed. The, I mean, one of the one of your characters who who really drew me in early in the novel was when we when we have our first scene in the prison. Uh, and there's a character. I don't want I don't want to give too much away here, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the character that we meet there and the and, and just the you know, the lifestyle that you created for him that really subverts our expectation of what we expect to see in a prison, which you have kind of described, you know, the way we, that we see Shawshank, kind of this old, very old fashioned stone stone structure. Yeah, so I, I, I agree, we shouldn't give too much away, but there's yeah. this really fascinating uh, character who lives um, in a, a sub-basement under death row. And yeah. he's got his own suite of sells and he you know eats well and he paints and he has a real taste for violence that uh the warden seems to be willing for certain reasons to um provide in terms of inmates to fight and, and these sorts of things but he's also he has these um levers of control that reach through the prison and beyond the prison yeah and you know it's one of these it's one of these dangerous things right um and, and I think Thomas Harris did it so well with uh, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, sure. You, you, you need to, the goal, let me put it this way. The goal is to create a character so um, compelling in his mastery of, um, again, I don't want to give things away, but so compelling in all the things that he does, so capable, uh, and yet make him at least remotely believable because the risk is you're going over the top. Right. So and, and this is another sort of cornerstone of good fiction. If you're going to keep the reader engaged in the story, you have even with with kind of what many would consider an over the top um, character. If you build enough backstory that they understand why this character is the way he is or the things that uh, drove him down this path, then they're willing to, to buy into it. Right. And so it's important to do it right and well. And, and I took a lot of chances with this guy because. Um, you know, it's hard to sort of go into the criminal mastermind space and, and actually succeed because in true life, there just aren't that many criminal masterminds. Yeah. I mean, most of my books are defined by, you know, ordinary people doing short-sighted base things for selfish, stupid, uh, heartless reasons. And it's about the repercussions that flow from that. So yeah. this is the first time I've had a character that knows exactly who he is, uh, what he's willing to do and why. And um, and yet to write him in a way that by the end of the book, he surprises even himself that after all these years of living the life that he's led, he is capable of being surprised literally at the, the moment of his pending death. Um, I had a lot of fun with this guy. I mean, and, and I've got so I've had people in publishing, people that are high up. I mean, CEOs of companies um, that have been around for 30 years say, you know, he's he's the best villain since Hannibal Lecter. I mean, he's in the top two bar That's none. Good. Yep. And, and I've had some early reads where people say, man, I really love the book, but you lost me a bit with this guy. And that's, that's the nature of this game, right? You can't sure. please everybody. Um, but as we sort of alluded to earlier, if we're not having fun as the writer, 
you know, the reader's not going to have fun and you have to push. You can't stay in the comfort zone. And, and this guy was definitely a little bit out of my comfort zone. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I could not have had more fun than I did writing this guy. Yeah. I love what you said about how there just aren't that many criminal masterminds. I mean, I, I think one of the things I admire about your books is that they do seem to be about real people, people that I can believe, whereas there is certainly a, a branch of, of crime fiction, I think, especially of you know, Hercule Poirot and things like this that are, that's based on this idea that there are world famous detectives and world famous villains. And there really aren't. I mean, I can't name a detective. So I like that you have real, you know, ordinary people really, you know. Well, look, I, I practiced criminal defense law for a very brief time, a couple of years, and um, I hated most everything about it. Um, but one of the things that I learned from it was exactly that. I mean, the people that I've brushed up against in the system, you know, they, they weren't, um, I mean, these, these were not genius level offenders. I mean, they, yeah. they, they make a bad decision. You know, they drink too much and kill somebody in a bar fight. And it's just, it's about the ripples and it's about the lives that are destroyed afterwards. And of course you can't spend too much time on those things because that can get a little grim. So mm -hmm. again, we're talking about millions of choices in the lines that we walk as writers. I like to show readers, uh, you know, some of the dark underbelly that, that does exist in the world. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on it to the point that they feel that the joy is sucked out of their day. Right. I mean, my books at their core are about these decent, normal people that find themselves inexplicably pulled in to these terrible circumstances and then finding somehow um, the courage to survive and, and maybe even thrive. And so it's really about that journey, you know, the, the brighter side of humanity dealing with uh, bad guys and bad circumstances. And it is about the badness itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. You write at one point, murder cases swept up innocent people all the time. And this is kind of building on what you just said. Do you, do you feel like you explore the, the gray area around guilt and innocence and, and show us that it's not a binary thing? And that, in fact, maybe all your characters are guilty of, of something. Uh, you know, look, I, it's funny that you, what you just said, when, when I would, um, you know, have these uh, clients that were clearly guilty. And I, I wasn't long enough in the law to be dealing with the truly evil people. But, you know, it's pretty kind of understood in the law community and in the law enforcement community that, you know, whatever brought them into this holding cell or into this courtroom, I mean, they're, they're pretty much guilty of something. Now, that's, that's a dangerous way to look at things as a criminal defense attorney. But, you know, these people are usually there for a reason. That being said, there are a lot of innocent people that go away for things that they did not do. And so maybe you're, um, you know, you live in the gray areas where you, you know, you don't pay your taxes or you run on your bar tab, or maybe you hit your girlfriend once. I mean, nothing that I would ever do or uh, respect anyone for doing, but it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you killed this kid and left his body in a ditch. Yeah. And so, you know, the lawyer's job, of course, is to make sure that that, that is separated out, um, that people aren't railroaded. And you know, John Grisham is a, a buddy of mine and he's very involved in, um, you know, the innocent man project yeah, yeah. and this question of, of guilt and innocence. I have not really gotten into that place yet. Um, I think it's truly an important question. Um, but I do know from having been around it that the system is so imperfect and uh, innocent people get, A, they get unintentionally swept up all the time and, and B, they are often uh, you know, railroaded on bad evidence or overzealous prosecutors or cops. I mean, that happens too. So it's, yeah. um, it's kind of like uh, when people talk about how laws are made, I mean, you don't want to see it happen just like you don't want to see sausage being made, 
Um, and, you know, American politics may suck, but it's still the best we can do, or at least in, in theory it is. And it's sort of the same thing with, um, you know, law enforcement and the yeah. criminal courts. Yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into you and the way you write. So if you're ready, we will begin. I'm ready. What word do you like to work into your writing? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it this way. I have a favorite word in okay. all the Eng English language, and it's ethereal. I right. think ethereal is an absolutely beautiful word that sounds like exactly what it is, which is yeah. an otherworldly beauty. And I, I just, that's how I perceive my wife, my very first date with her. She had this ethereal yeah. quality. And so that, that's my favorite word. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Squat or squatted, you know, or crouched or anything like the car crouched yeah. in the weeds. I mean, no, the cars don't crouch yeah. anything like that. Um, where's your favorite place to write? Uh, I, I live on a farm in Virginia and I have uh, uh, an old tractor barn with an office in it. And that's where yes. I like to work. Where could you never write? Coffee shops. I've tried it. I never yeah. get anything done. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I would say I've never been scared of a sentence fragment. <laughs> uh, what's the first book you remember reading? Well, it, the first book that I remember was actually read to me by my father oh. when I was very young. It was called Divers Down, um, you know, about some kids at a dive camp in Hawaii. I think I was six or seven when he read it. Yeah. What are you reading now? Um, well, Honestly, I don't read while I'm writing. I start to mm -hmm. sound like the person that I'm reading. So yeah. um, I'm in the middle of a book. I'm not reading much. Um, I'll pile drive, um, you know, three months worth of reading yeah. when I'm finished. Yeah. Uh, what book would you like to have written? Ooh, that's tough. Um, <laughs> Prince of Tides. Okay. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Something... Um, you know, a truly full-throated literary novel. Mm -hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I guess, you know, ideally I'd love to hear someone say you changed my life, but that seems a little impossible. Um, I think probably the favorite thing I like to hear is uh, you ruined my night's sleep. <laughs> Although I'll tell you a quick story. I mean, one, one guy came up to me once and said, I have a real problem with you. Uh, Mr. Hart, my wife spends more time in bed with you than she does with me. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been John Hart, whose novel, The Unwilling, is available wherever books are sold. John, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Charlie, it's been great. Thank you. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audio platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you'd have enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to historical novelist Erica Roebuck about her new novel, Invisible Woman. Until then, 
Thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.